Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation is all brewing. Amazed that the focus remains the focal focal point of my change. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today's show is with Julia Conan. Julia finished top 10 in the Olympic trials this year in the marathon, had an absolutely fantastic race. And frankly, she had had a lot of races leading up that indicated that this was possible. However, if you read any of the pre-race publications, you would know that she was not necessarily someone who was pegged to finish top 10. And I could not wait to get into all things with her. This was originally going to run on the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast. However, as I'm sure you may know by now, um, things are not looking good for the, for the Olympics to happen this summer. So the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast is going to be coming to a close. And while that stinks, um, you know, there are bigger tragedies out there. So it's not that big of a deal, but. I am so excited for you to hear this episode. Julia, like so many people we've interviewed on this podcast specifically, came to running through a different sport and through a non-traditional route. While that's not you know, news to any amateur runner, it is a little rare for professional runners. And this is something that we explore in depth in this episode. So without further ado, here is Julia Conan. Hello, Julia, and welcome to the show. And first of all, congratulations on a wonderful, wonderful um, trip down to Atlanta in so many ways. I just couldn't be happier for you because it seemed like just holistically that that day could not have gone any better for you. Thank you. Yeah, it was. Um, that's the one thing I say every time I'm People are like, congratulations. I'm like, yeah, it was a, it was a big day. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. And it's it's been so fun. Oh, you were on Lindsay's Lindsay Hines podcast a couple weeks ago, and Lindsay does such a great job. You were great on there and reading uh, some of the feature stories that, that have been put out about you, yeah, especially the ones you know in your hometown, St. Louis. It's just been so fantastic reading about you. And as we were talking offline before we got going, one of the things that I loved was that that basketball background of yours. So. We're going to start chronologically here because I love these non-traditional running stories where people end up getting to a very high level in a sport, but not because they've done it their whole life, right? It's not the 10,000 hours rule of running. You came at it from a different perspective, which I love to see. And it's just so, it's just so fascinating. So just first things first, when you were a high school athlete and certainly you were a very good one, what sports did you gravitate towards? I played soccer and basketball um, all through high school. So I played for my varsity high school team as well as um, club soccer and club basketball. So for club basketball, you mean like playing AAU like in the fall, I mean in the spring and summer? Yes, I played AAU pretty much year round when I wasn't in my high school season. Okay. So for you, did you have a preference between the two? Um, Actually, when... I was told when it was coming close to college, I had a hard time choosing uh, which sport I wanted to play in college. Um, So I did not have a preference, but I think more towards my junior, senior year is when I started to gravitate more towards um, looking into college for soccer. Now, what was the recruiting like for you in terms of the different sports you were being recruited for and if there were any schools that were potentially recruiting you for both? Um, yeah, there were some local s- schools in St. Louis, smaller schools that were recruiting me to play both soccer and basketball. Um, 
But then when I started focusing more on what I wanted to get a scholarship for and what where I'd be the next four years, um, that's when I started getting more of my soccer resume out there. But um, my high school has a very, very strong basketball program. So we had college scouts at quite a few of our college games. And a lot of the girls I graduated with, with went off and played some pretty big D1 basketball. And when you're talking about being a scholarship athlete, at that point, you know, it's pretty tough to to divide your loyalties between sports because obviously the sport that's giving you a scholarship kind of has your rights, so to speak. Yeah. And so when you're going to sign to play college soccer, um, you want to be focusing on soccer. And some of the coaches are like, well, why are you still playing high school basketball? <laughs> and what about those sports did you like? Like, what, what about those sports individually did you like? So I guess basketball first and then soccer second. Um, I guess, I don't know. I, there's so many things I liked about, um, being part of the team. And then each sport is very different. Um, basketball, I was a shooting guard, so I didn't want to be the point guard dribbling the, dribbling the ball, but, um, I had no problem being the shooting guard or playing defense was actually probably my specialty there. Um, and I kind of had a little bit of speed, so that was always good. And then soccer, um, I was a midfield, so I did most of the running on the team. And that was always a strength of mine, actually, was a fitness test and um, being able to run for 90 minutes and not get tired and play the whole game. Um, that was one of my favorite parts about soccer. Yes, yeah, as a college athlete. You always have – it's basically every sport has this. It's just the fit, like the, basically the fitness testing when you come back to campus to make sure that you were working the offseason and all of that. What did that look like for you? Because, you know, spoiler alert, like obviously you're an excellent runner. So what did that – how did that manifest itself uh, on the pitch, you know, not only in terms of your playing style but also like your offseason testing and, you know, measuring yourself against your other – you know, your, your teammates? Um, yeah, so that was – I guess I could have started realizing it earlier that I could have been <laughs> gotten to this running world, but soccer, um, coming into college, I came in as a freshman and, you know, you never know how much you're going to play and what your role on the team is going to be. And I came into preseason. I remember just nervous as can be. Um, and we're doing fitness tests and next thing you know, I'm getting first and, put it ahead of seniors who are on the soccer team. And that's what makes a coach recognize you. And don't get me wrong. I worked my butt off that summer just because I knew going in, I wanted to, if I can't control how well I play, I can't control how hard I work. So that was always a strength of mine. Um, after every summer we would come back and do fitness tests. And by my junior, senior year of college, my coach was like, all right, girls, Julia's going to lead the fitness test. Just keep up with her. <laughs> so what was the testing specifically? Um, for soccer, a lot of it would be uh, full field suicides or short suicides. So, or we would do one of them. A main one we did was one twenties. So we would run the length of a soccer field and you had about 17 seconds to get down to the other end. And then you would jog back the rest of the time. And once you got back, then it hit the minute mark and then you'd sprint again. Um, so we had to do about sets of those. Um, we did a lot of short suicides and then the only long fitness test we had was a two-mile time test. Oh, how did you do in that? Um, I led my team every year when we did that. Um, I think I ran 
the everyone on the team, the goal was to finish, I think, like under 14 or 15, and I would run it around 13. Okay. Just with going out in soccer cleats and running a two-mile test. <laughs> so talk to us about what instigated your conversion from playing soccer. Was it Southern Indiana? Yes. From playing soccer at Southern Indiana to all of a sudden running at Southern Indiana. Um, so yeah, I, it was my senior year and we had just lost our, um, last game of the conference tournament. So it meant we were done and I was just bummed. Like my whole life I played, told you, um, basketball and soccer competitively. And I was just like, okay, well, what do I have now? I've my whole life I've been involved in competitive sports. Um, so I was all like upset and then I was worried about getting out of shape. And so I just kept running, um, pretty consistently around campus just to stay in shape and stay fit. Um, and one of the guys in my, one of my business classes saw me and he was like, asked, kind of asked me what I was running. And I was like, Oh, I just do the six mile loop every day. And he was like, how fast? And I told him and he was like, why do you do that? And I'm like, just to stay fit. He was like, you're running as much as some of the girls on our cross country team are right now. And he was like, and faster. (laughs) And then I guess he told the cross country coach at Southern Indiana about me, um, Mike Hilliard, who then approached me about joining the team. And at first I was thought he was crazy. I was like, I've never ran cross country or track a day in my life. I don't know anything about it. I don't, um, think I'd be a good fit. But then he kind of talked me into coming out and giving it a try. And we talked about how I could pursue my master's and stay another year in sports. And it was definitely a very interesting change of scenes for me. (laughs) So did you know any of the cross country or track runners? Because, you know, in college sports, oftentimes, whether it's the training room or when you're working out and lifting and and things like that, especially for you, because you are, you know, a fall sport athlete. You know, cross country is also a fall sport. Did you know the team at all? Um, we saw them all the time running and, um, we were just like, wow, these people run all the time, but I was not very close with them. Um, I like a lot of the soccer girls were close with like the soccer guys, or we hung out with, um, some of the volleyball team and the baseball team, but I did not really know any other cross country people at the time. So what was that like just from a social perspective, joining that team, as a fifth year, you know, it's not like a fifth year transfer where you're just coming in, but it's a blank slate. Like you're coming in from a different sport at the same school. Um, yeah, it was definitely hard because I always gelled well with, uh, soccer players and I don't know, every sport has its like kind of like nation, um, thing about it. And so I always gelled really well with, um, the soccer team. And then I didn't know any of the cross country girls and, a lot of them had been on the team together for years. Um, so they had that connection and I kind of just came in as the girl and on top of not knowing anyone, I did not know what I was doing. Um, I had, they were talking about, Oh, do you have your spikes? And I'm like, yeah, I have soccer cleats in the car. (laughs) And I showed up to practice in soccer shorts and a t-shirt and they're like, where are your running shorts? Like I, I just, you could tell I looked at a place. I had no idea what I was doing. All right. So once you got going, you're in the mix with practices. You can kind of see what the other people are doing and can kind of follow along. Once you started to ingratiate yourself 
in the team, what was it like from a running perspective in terms of how quickly you came along and how you compared to your teammates? Um, well, that was uh, an interesting transition as well. Um, everyone on the team was super nice and um, very helpful because if I didn't have them, like I said, I didn't know what I was doing. So all the girls were kind of walking me through every step. But then I also think there was some um, tension or frustration at times because I came in as the soccer girl and I very quickly became the number one spot on the team. And then um, my first my first and only year of cross country, the team didn't make it to nationals um, out of the region, but I made it as an individual. And so there was girls that had been running on the team for a um, couple years and this was their goal to make it to nationals. And then you have this random girl who's never ran anything in her life, and I made it to nationals on my own. So that was like – there was some hard parts in that. Um, but like I said, all of the girls were very welcoming and nice, and if it wasn't for them like telling me what to do half the time, I would have been lost. So it was certainly like a very strange – sounds like a very strange season for you in terms of like you obviously were very successful, but it was this whole new thing. Like it's, it's, such, a, it's such an odd way – to get into a sport in certain ways, especially with your success, right? Having that kind of success must have made it even a little more strange because it kind of emphasized or even, you know, further emphasized like how new and novice you were in certain ways. Yeah. And I um, actually, so I did four years of college soccer and I was a GLVC all conference player and all that, but I never was an all American and my one year of cross country and track, I was a four-time All-American, setting school records, um, finishing top in the in Division Two athletics. And I was like, I wish I had more time in this sport now because after four years of college soccer, you only get one year, one extra year of eligibility in a different sport. So um, I was real having all of this success in such a short amount of time. It made me kind of sad that I didn't have more time in the sport. So what was your decision-making process like at the end of that fifth year in terms of if to continue pursue running and if so, how to do that? Um, yeah. So after that year, I was pretty successful. I finished um, second in the country for division two in the 10 K. And then I was um, fifth, fourth or fifth at nationals in the five K Um uh, so for outdoor track. And so after that, there was, um, some talks with my coach and potential about, do you try and go run professionally somewhere? But I still didn't really know much about the running world at all. I just was like, Oh, I just did this track season and where coach Hilliard told me to go, I went. Um, and then I was finishing my master's. And so the only thing I really thought was, okay, well, I just got my master's degree now it's time to move home and get a full-time job. So that's that's what I did. I just moved back to St. Louis and um, started applying and working. Um, that's when I started working for the St. Louis Cardinals part-time. And then I got a full-time job at Panera Bread. And I've been there ever since. Right. So you're working corporate, in the, basically in the corporate headquarters, Panera Bread in St. Louis. You're at this point of like a lifetime athlete who's been, for the most part, all about team sports. So what was this transition like for you as this team sport heavy athlete where all of a sudden you don't have a team nor do you have organized athletics? Yeah, so that was kind of 
um, new to me as well. So I moved home and I didn't even know about running teams and running communities after college. So all I did was just keep running on my own and I didn't have very much structure. Um, I ran pretty consistent miles, but other than that, I wasn't really doing many workouts. Um, and then I signed up for a local St. Louis half marathon and ended up going out there and winning the marathon. And, um, it, or I won the half marathon. And so someone came up to me after the race. One of the girls was like, um, we have a team here in St. Louis and like, are you from here? We, we've never seen you. What, what, who do you run with? <laughs> and, and she, she finished second right behind me. And I was like, um, I just run on my own. I just kind of signed up for this because I live here and saw the half marathon and I wanted to do one. And she was like, you should come out and run with us. Um, and at the time it was big river running, but now it's go St. Louis running team. And I, at first I like hesitated and then I did the go St. Louis half marathon again in the fall that fall and did the half marathon and I won that one again. And I saw some people and that's when, um, they kind of reached out to me and they were like, you should really come run with us, start running on this team. And I was like, well, why don't I do that? I mean, I'm running on my own six, seven days a week and I could use some more structure and, um, have people to run with. So I'm not running by myself. And so that's, um, was like early 2016, I guess I, finally decided to go out and start running with that group. Now, is that the group that Ben Rosario worked with when he was in St. Louis? Um, yes. So my coach, Jason Holroyd, um, knows Ben Rosario and ran with all those guys, but that was like way before my time. So I did not know him, um, through here in St. Louis, but my coach ran with him and trained with him, um, when he was here. Got it. Okay. So this is such an interesting background. I mentioned before, like, I love these kind of stories because it's so unique. And like, we already know how it worked out. Like you got 10th at the Olympic trials four years after you run this half marathon, you know, almost spontaneously. And, you know, obviously it worked out very well for you. And you met people there that helped further your running. At what point did you start engaging with, you know, a coach who then was able to provide you I don't know, maybe, obviously you were a really good runner in college, but you're kind of the structure that allowed you to start reaching new levels. Yeah. So that is my coach now, Jason Holroyd. He, um, we have a group called go St. Louis here. And at first, when I first joined big river, it wasn't as, um, formal. It was kind of like we had a team and Jason gave us pretty schedules, but there was, everyone was pretty much on the same schedule nothing, um, very specific. And it was more of just like getting your mileage. And then as the team, um, continued to evolve into a more like elite group. So now we're a pretty elite group in St. Louis, um, of guys and girls. And Jason, um, coaches all of us, writes our weekly training schedules. And Jason has really found my potential in the marathon. And after, um, coaching me for just a short time and, getting me to sign up for my first marathon, um, in late 2016 and seeing what I could do off a little training. That's when he was like, okay, well now we're going to focus on some half marathon, marathon training. Um, and that's when I started to take it a little more serious when he was like, you know, you could easily like, you could potentially qualify for the Olympic trials and, uh, get out there. 
And so ever since then, if it wasn't for Jason writing my schedules and walking me through the whole process, I don't know if I ever would have been here. So did you take to that kind of training well as someone who, again, who's coming from this team sport background where all of a sudden you're in one of the most individualistic sports there is in terms of you know marathon running and long distance running? Um, yeah. And a lot of people do ask that because, yeah, coming from a whole team sport to now you're running, doing a sport where you're on your own. Like, I think there are parts of that that I really, truly did enjoy because I always felt that if I was going to let someone down, at least I wasn't letting the team down. I was on myself. And if I was going to succeed, I didn't need other people there. Um, I'm going to work my butt off and do really well. And then that will show. So at first I didn't like the whole, like you're on your own, but then it took some time to realize like, maybe that is what I do enjoy and, um, transitioning to how you can individually work yourself to either put the pressure on yourself to succeed or you have a bad day and you're not affecting other people. Um, it's a weird transition, but I think I'm getting used to it now. (laughs) So you ended up running 231 at twin cities. And then at the Olympic trials, you were one of the very few people in the entire field And as we know, the women's field was enormous. One of the only people there who set a PR at the trials on that unbelievable Atlanta course. So that's a remarkable feat in and of itself. With that said, it's not like you came out of nowhere because, you again, you had a 231 in the bag. You had run so well at Twin Cities. Yet, in terms of the people who were in that echelon that you were, Going into the trials, you're one of the very few people who's working a full-time job as well. So let's talk about your training over the, the kind of like the 12 months leading into the trials in terms of how did you schedule your runs? What kind of weekly training were you doing? Were you doing doubles? Like how did your how did these weeks and months look for you as you were progressing towards the trials? Um yeah, so I do that's another kind of a unique story that I have is up until um mid-October this year, or 2019, I have been working two jobs. So I work uh, full-time for Panera Bread, and that's currently what I still do. Um, The corporate office is here in St. Louis. And then um, I was working part-time for the St. Louis Cardinals. So on top of running anywhere between 90 to 110 miles a week, I was probably working um, 60 to 70 or more hours a week. Um, and it just requires a lot of discipline and a schedule and planning ahead. Um, I would, my typical day, if the Cardinals, so say the Cardinals were in town, um, over the summer, I'd be, I'd wake up at five, um, start my run between five thirty and six, um, get home around seven thirty get ready, go to work, go to work between 8.30 and 9, work until 5, then head straight to Bush Stadium and um, work from 5 until, or 5.30, I guess I'd get there usually, um, 5.30 or 6, until the end of the Cardinals game. Sometimes that was 10, sometimes 11. Uh, Come home, go to bed, and do it all again. Um, But when you're running 100 miles a week, you have to find times for doubles. So a lot of my doubles would be over lunch or try and cut out of work a little bit early around four, four thirty, and, um, 
get my double in before heading down to the stadium. And granted, I only work when the Cardinals were in town. So there was weeks that definitely weeks like on and off, it would either be a busy week or a normal week. Um, but yeah, it required just a lot of planning ahead. That's what I got used to. And a whole lot of energy. <laughs> That's for sure. Because <laughs> that is a crazy schedule. I mean, a 60 hour work week in and of itself, even if you're literally not exercising at all, that can be draining for sure. So are you one of those people that's always just been at a high energy level or is this something that you really have to go out of your way to cultivate? Um, no, I've always been very um, high energy and kind of that person that's always doing probably more than I need to be doing. I say yes, to everything always got two or three things going on at one time. Um, that's definitely something my, even like my mom has always said, all right, you need to slow down. You need to say no to something. You need to back off. Um, you're do, trying to do too much. And I think that's just how I've been my whole life is, um, like I said, at the very beginning, I didn't just play on one soccer team. I played on two or three soccer teams, two or three basketball teams at one time, kind of just busy, busy. My goodness. Some people are just like that. That's for sure. And the, uh, there's a certain cohort of endurance athletes where I'm sure, certainly at the highest level where I feel like that could, that can be a talent just as good, if not more important than some sort of genetic talent in terms of like, you know, how long someone say Achilles tendon is or what, how many, you know, their, how their muscle fibers are proportioned between fast twitch and slow twitch. Like, I just feel like the, the, the capacity and energy level, while it's like, I don't even know exactly how to talk about it because it's such a, a strange phenomenon, but I feel like that's as great of a talent as so many other things that can be associated with running. Yeah. Um, I like to think it that way. And I like to, um, think of it as an advantage, um, especially for endurance sports, but you'll have people like my, my now fiance Tyler or my mom will be like, all right, well you just slow down and stop doing so many things at once. So, um, I'm glad you think find it as an advantage too. <laughs> well, because there's some people in my life who are like that, and I look at them and I'm like, I'm not like you. <laughs> I, <laughs> I want to be like you, but I'm not, and it, the the difference is stark. Yeah. All right. So you had an interesting quote in one of the feature articles in that I read in one of the St. Louis newspapers, where you talked about how when you were in basically the first half of the Olympic trials marathon that you were kind of looking around and seeing people that you've kind of like been a fangirl of in the race. And you're like, you're running side by side with them. And certainly you beat a bunch of them and were right there with, with, with several others. What was it like for you as you were preparing for the race, trying to come to grips with where you thought you stood within that field? Yeah, that was definitely um, hard because one, so you get kind of like, your, I don't know, like your ranking, like, you know, where you stand. So I went in like bib 24 and, but then I also know like, there's a lot of girls that are up to 50, like just as fast, if not faster, um, as talented. And so you're thinking about all those people as well. And then I'm like, okay, the people in front of me are all these big name people that I follow on social media and read about in articles because I think they're so cool. And they're just, the best marathon or female athletes out there. And you, I've been like following their story, looking up to them. Um, so I'm like, okay, how am I going to play into this race and 
going in, having like um, a pretty good marathon coming off of, I had some confidence from that. And I knew that I had worked and trained and um, had some goals for the trials, but I didn't know how well I would fit into what they've been doing in their training as well. So let's talk about those goals. What were some of the things that you were thinking about? Um, so I went in and I was like, I can hang and be in this top pack, um, or be top 25. And I, I know that I've put in the work I've put in the miles. Um, my workouts showed that I can run a two thirty. Um, everyone going into Atlanta, I mean, the main thing talked about was the Hills. So everyone was a little scared of the course in the Hills. I had no expectations to PR that day. I knew I was um, capable of running faster than what I ran at Twin Cities, but going into a hilly course, um, a windy day, and not knowing how the pack is going to go out. I mean, are people going to go slow? Are people going to go fast from the gun? Um, This is more of a strategic race. I mean, girls are competing to be the top three, so... It's definitely different than a marathon where you're going in with the only goal to PR. And yet you did PR, which is like, you know, again, such, such, a, such a rare thing. So as we know how the race turned out, the men's race and women's race were exact opposites, right? I just talked to Jared Ward this morning. We talked about how the men's race, there was like a break at mile two where the women's race, it was really a battle of attrition all the way to the end, which was remarkable to witness. So as you're staying with this group, again, huge group, especially like up until like mile 20 or so, you know, basically everybody who has the bib number similar to yours is right there. So at mile 18, 19, tell me what happened with your leg and your body that started to, you know, at that point, you must have really been a little, uh, a little freaked out. Um, yeah, actually I was running. So you asked previously, and I don't know if I answered like my thoughts going into the race. And I was like, okay, I can hang. If there's a middle pack, I'll probably be with them. Um, do my best to see how the top pack is doing. But if they were going to be taken off to run like two twenty, low two twenties, I was like, I don't know if I can do that. Um, I'll just see how I feel. So then when I'm running and we get to the half, um, marathon point, I, am still with the main pack, just hanging in the middle there. And I feel like nothing. Like I feel great. I'm like, all right, let's just keep this pace going. Um, didn't feel winded or anything like that. Um, so I was pretty excited when you get halfway and you know that you still have, you still feeling pretty good, but yeah, the parts of the marathon, anywhere between 18 and 22 can hit you hard. And I did get hit, um, pretty hard between 18 and 19. I just felt this surge go up my hamstring and my leg just wanted to give out. Um, there was a moment there where I thought about it. I was like, I can't, I can't keep doing this. I can't, um, my, my, my leg's just going to stop working. Um, so that's kind of when I backed off, which was a bummer because I saw how I, like, I knew how I felt one mile before that. And I felt completely fine running with this top pack and getting excited and then to see myself just like kind of slowly drift away from them, um, around mile 19 or so that was hard. But then I just mentally had to tell myself, stay with it, um, get your stride together and just try and stay consistent and finish this race. So 
when that happened, had you experienced that kind of pain before or that kind of sensation like in that area of your leg? No. And that's, I think what, um, freaked me out the most is I've been pretty lucky. Knock on wood is I've been pretty injury free. And I don't know if that's because I've later to the running game than a lot of the girls are. Um, and I've had a few, um, I suffered a pretty bad knee injury over a little over a year ago. But other than that, I've been injury free as far as muscles and, um, IT band and all that goes. So this was a new feeling to me. And I think that is kind of what um, really freaked me out the most is I hadn't had any hamstring issues going into the race. Um, the day before I felt a little tight, but I was like, oh, that's just nervous tightness. Um, but I guess it was a little more that I might have just been ignoring. So once you backed off a little bit, Tell me about whether that injury or I don't even know what to call it, that sensation, did it persist through the end of the race or was it something that you were able to work through? Um, the initial of the like shock of up my hamstring, that, yeah, that definitely went, th- went away and kind of eased out. Um, the next few miles, like I just kind of got into a slower stride and tried to just be consistent on the uphill and downhill because anytime that I went from like, short stride to long stride. That's when I felt it. Um, but I was like, okay, if you can just run smooth, uh, I, I noticed that it was, it it would hang in there and I'd be feeling okay. And there were random parts when it would hurt worse than, um, others, it would be okay. Um, like going on the flats, like flat part, I was like, oh, this feels okay. And then I would start come to another hill or a turn and something would just tweak it a little bit. So, we're talking a lot of, you know, how you're feeling physically and, you know, your training. A lot of this has been very physical related in terms of your running and progressing as an athlete. But mentally emo- mentally and emotionally in that last 10K, what was that like for you? Because after you, f- after you fell off the pace, then around that same time, if you just look at the splits for the top runners, a lot of people started slowing up a little bit after you did. So what was it like for you, you know, basically trying to work through that sensation that you were experiencing, but yet at the same time, notice that there were women potentially coming back to you? Yeah. um, And that was one thing. I mean, I was, when I initially felt it, I was bummed. Like it just got to my head. I was like, no, like you didn't hang on this long to not finish this. And um, I was kind of bummed. But then, yeah, I kept going and I saw... Um, a couple girls drop out and girls on the side that I was like, Oh, I, I didn't picture them to not be finishing this race. And, um, then I was passing a couple that I didn't think I would be passing. So I was like, okay, so maybe I'm not the only one that kind of hit that wall at 19, um, and started slowing up. But then I still had no idea where I was in relation to the pack. Like I knew there was still a strong pack up there. So I was like, I could be anywhere from, 10th to 20th right now. I really didn't have any idea. That's so interesting because obviously the crowds were insane. So were they, did you, in retrospect, do you think that they were trying to let you know, or was it just like, just broad based, like in general cheering? Um, I think a lot of it was general cheering. I do remember hearing at some points, like your top 12, your top 15. Um, and which 
that helps for sure. But then at that point, you're like, there's so many people and so much going on. And so many guys have passed. Like, you don't know if these people know you. I don't know if they're talking to me or if there is someone behind me. Um, and so that I was like, okay, I'm not going to completely base off of what I'm hearing from the fans. And yeah, a lot of the fans were just cheering and being so supportive. Like, keep going. You got this, which was awesome too. Um, how great the crowd support was. Yeah, I can imagine that kind of feeling like when you're at a marathon and someone's like, you're almost there. You're like, wait, am I almost there? Or is that just something that you're saying? Yeah, like what's almost there? Is that three miles or is that like a half mile? Because those are two different almost theirs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I've, so the course was three eight-mile loops. And then you kind of had like the appendix kind of coming off the loop and then d- down the finishing straight and down the downhill and all that, like the bridge and the downhill. When you were experiencing that last two-mile section, what was going through your mind and your body in terms of not only the positive, but also the negative? Um, Positive, I was like, okay, you're almost there. Um, At this point, like you said, I saw a couple people that were initially in the lead pack that had either dropped or had dropped back that I had passed. Um, So I was like, okay. Uh, maybe you're higher than you think you are and you can still hang in there. But then some of the negatives were like, I am so ready to be done. My legs are just yelling at me. Um, as far as like energy and my breathing and everything like that, I felt com- just fine there. It was more just my legs were yelling and ready to be done. So I was like, come on, push through. You can get through this. Um, get through the last hill and then you'll be just going straight to the finish. Um, it was also hard because I usually have always had a record of finishing a race, um, stronger than I start. And this one was the opposite. I was feeling pretty weak at the end. Um, when usually I, I'm like twin cities when I finished that, I finished strong and I could have kept running. Like I was ready to go this one. I was just like, just get me there. So that was a hard, um, adjustment for me to do. And mentally I just had to keep focused on each mile. Um, I tried to break it down by like, okay, once you get through this one, like not look too far ahead and just take it mile by mile. Um, for that last, I would say the five miles, that was just my game plan. And your experience it really is one of those things where I think it speaks to, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this. It speaks to the idea of if you're just someone who's athletic, who does a lot of sports, who's just always participating in athletics and working hard in various sports, that ultimately, like, you don't need to specialize young to be good at a sport later in life, as long as you're continually being athletic and testing your body in a very, in, you know, kind of a myriad of ways. Yeah, I think playing sports um, growing up taught me so much. And I think that is kind of what's led to my success in running in a short amount of time is I've always had that competitive edge. I've always had the attitude of show up, work hard, um, and that that'll get you places. And just having um, all the experience of whether it's running down a basketball court and you're down by two with 30 seconds left or um, soccer game and you got it's the championship and you're down by a goal. Like all those experiences growing up taught me um, not only like hard work and competition, but just the a- athletic side of things, which I think 
you can put into now put into racing. Um, everything you learn, you just put it into your sport and how to adjust. So you end up finishing 10th, which is just a monumental achievement. And one of those things where, you know, people who finish 10th in the Olympic trials, especially in the marathon, you know, that can be a lifetime goal accomplished. However, especially for you, this has been an endeavor where, you know, the, it really the sky is the limit in so many ways. So when you think about what's next, both short term and long term, what are some of the things that come to mind? Um, yeah, this shows that I I can compete at the highest level. Um, going into this, I I don't know if I gave myself enough um, confidence or thought that I could. I always looked up to runners at the top level, um, but that that race showed that I can compete with these people. And I am only twenty seven. Um, females really don't hit their peak marathon until thirties. Is what. I mean, what you hear. So four years from now, I'll be 30, 31, um, have a lot more experience under my belt, a lot more training under my belt. I'm just excited to see where these next few years, what I can do. Um, and I'm just, I've only had, I'd probably say two years of high mileage. Um, I had never done 80, 90, 100 mile weeks before. So now that my body's getting used to that and I'm learning more about race tactics and knowing um, just experiences, I am definitely excited to see where these next four years go and already looking forward to the next trials. Now, and I don't want to, I don't want to get you in trouble with your employer. So if they're listening to this, no disrespect, but it, what's it like for you juggling the idea of, you know, whether or not to continue working or maybe pursue running more on a full-time basis? Or is that something where you just can't imagine doing? Because again, like you said before, like you're always up to like so many things at once that maybe just doing one thing just wouldn't be enough for you. Oh yeah. It's something that has definitely been talked about, um, in the last week, week and a half, um, more than ever before. and. I think about it as, I mean, I went back to work the Monday after the trials, um, like nothing had happened, nothing had changed. And I do think, but then, so you have people saying, Hey, well, well, where's your professional running career going to go? And I'm open to exploring that. And I do want to see where it could take me instead of, um, the thought of being able to focus on sleeping and running and recovery and strength training and have time for the stretching and physical therapy and, um, going to the gym and working on core rather than running, going to work, then going to do strength training after work and trying to go to bed. And, um, yeah, the thought of pursuing that without a career has like definitely crossed my mind and is something to think about, but then also like I told you earlier, I've always been that person that has thrived off of doing more than one thing at one time. So I'm like, is that, is that something that I need to be doing to like, is working? Cause right now, um, for work, I work at least 40 hours a week. I travel. Um, I do have the flexibility to work from home every now and then. Um, I try not to do that very often, but I might, I question, okay, if I did just focus on running, is that something like different for me? Would I, would I know how to handle that and not be doing three things at one time? 
at the same time, are you willing to give up the coffee industry? Because it literally was a third of the top 10 female runners are in the coffee industry. Molly Seidel, as, as everyone knows, is a barista. Des Linden has her own coffee company. You're working at Panera. I mean, do you really want to mess with, with the success of the coffee running industry? I do love coffee and I would have, <laughs> I will need coffee every day still. So um, maybe that is a sign you should stick with it, stick in the coffee industry. Or maybe like they can just be your sponsor instead of your employer. Um, yeah, I think I should run that by them. <laughs> there you go. There you go. They uh, have supplied me with coffee every day, but that's funny. I didn't realize I knew the whole Molly Seidel and Des, but I didn't realize three of the top 10 were in the coffee industry. There you go. See the secrets of success. This is why we're doing the podcast. Everyone wants to know the secret. We got it. You're right there. There you go. Uh, right there. <laughs> Julia, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been so much fun talking to you and learning more about you as the months have progressed. And now, my goodness, what a race you had. Again, thank you so much for coming on the show and best of luck to you in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me. And um, this was fun. So just anytime you ever want to chat again, let me know. Thank you. Thank you, Julia, for hopping on this show. Now, a couple things I want to say before we get going. I probably should have said this during the intro, but we are one week away from the virtual race series happening. The Rambling Runner virtual race series, four races, eight weeks, starting with the 5K next weekend. I cannot wait for that to get started. It's really going to be so much fun. That's going to be the 27th, the 28th, and the 29th. In two days, I'll put out a pre-race podcast detailing everything that you need to know for that race. I'll also be posting updates on our Rambling Run Club page on Strava, my website, theramblingrunner.com, and on Instagram and Facebook. Basically, if you have a computer, you will have plenty of ways to get information on what we're doing and how we're doing it. I am so excited. We're lining up sponsors. We got some fun giveaways. A lot of things are happening. We're trying to make the best of this hard situation that so many of us are going through. And I'm just happy to provide a little bit of light into your athletic and running life. So thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of In Post Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. Just representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.